Hello, we are here live, the Music Prophet. So thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Kyle Vine, and I am your host, your guide, I suppose. Today, there is a songwriter in the studio who has done a lot of sounds and has played in a lot of different venues and created a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and I'm, ex- I'm really excited. So thanks for coming on the show, Dana Manning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kyle. So give us sort of a content or a, a brief description of sort of where you're from, just so that people know. Sure. Um, well, I'm a singer-songwriter from Stratford, Ontario. I was born and raised there. Um, my dad was the high school music teacher in town, and so I come by all the music stuff, honestly. Um, when I was 16, 15, 16 years old, I wrote my first record uh, all by myself and convinced a studio to make it for me on spec, and um, EMI bought it from them. So I, I had a record deal pretty young and um, toured all over Canada. It was really cool. And then I kind of, you know, around that time where you're not sure if you picked the right career for yourself, I um, put the brakes on a little tiny bit. Um, it was hard to make the second record with the record company when I had made the first one on my own. And then I went back and kind of made my third one on my own and um, joined a band called Trent Severn for three albums. And then now I've just released my most recent solo album, which is a chamber folk record. And it involves a lot of people from my hometown of Stratford which happens to be full of incredible musicians because of the Stratford Festival. Which would yeah. make sense, right? Stratford is that home of theater and music and yeah, those performing arts that you don't normally find. No, it's like li- living in an urban art center, but there's only 30,000 people there and there's a lot of farmers and it's rural. <laughs> so how is, that, how is that growing up for you? Well, though? I thought it was amazing. I remember going to, um, I saw Lucy Peacock in My Fair Lady when I was eight years old, and it changed my life. I I kind of grew up thinking that that's all I wanted to do was be part of the Stratford Festival, but the songwriting um, career just kind of diverted me from that. Um, and I love, you know, like, I'm kind of like in the songwriting thing as a lifestyle, more than like as a career, if that makes sense. Can you act, actually, can you explain that difference? Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not just constantly chasing like music business opportunities or, or things like that. But um, I guess the lifestyle would be uh, being involved in my community with musically. So I mentor younger songwriters in my community. Um, I'd like to produce albums. I've actually engineered two of the Trent Severn albums. It was, it's almost like, uh, wanting to be part of all the different aspects of being a songwriter. So I took graphic design courses and I've, um, I've actually designed a lot of the other local CD packages for a lot of the other artists. I designed a ton of the posters. Um, I just like all the different aspects of being a songwriter. So when you make an album, you work on writing a collection of of songs. Then you change your hat and work on getting it to tape. Then you change your hat and you work on getting it out to people to hear and um, and then do a live show that's based on it. So that, for me, I've enjoyed every aspect of it. And um, I even actually just wrote a book too. I had a book come out in October that was told through my songs and it was um, 
being a songwriter is kind of like this choose your own adventure life because you create something that affects people in ways that you can't really predict. And so your life takes these different paths because you made these songs and they affected people. And that's probably what I enjoy the most is not knowing what's ahead and um, the situations that I've found myself in because I made something. Yeah. Right. Because even though you release it and it has meaning to you, it's not really direct or clear in lyrics. Like the message is not painted over top of it. Yeah. Yeah. Some, I mean, as, as I went on and especially with my band Trent Severn, our kind of mandate was to try and write songs that our community um, would relate to songs about living in rural Ontario and about local legends. And it almost became uh, an adventure you could almost start to predict by, by the different songs that you wrote, but at the same time you couldn't. I, I um, wrote a song called Trescott about the Stephen Trescott story, and Chris Hadfield ended up loving it while he was on the space station, and he called us from outer space to our concert, and we interviewed him in front of the audience, and then I ended up, we ended up on Parliament Hill that Canada Day playing Space Oddity with him on for the first time ever on Earth. And I couldn't have ever imagined that that would have happened from writing that song. You know, I can only imagine that after that, things, it takes a lot to get excited after that. Oh, no, I love the little things, too. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting that you would say that. Um, it, it also, song, songwriting brings out really eccentric people as well. Like, um, I ended up writing a song with this guy named Bill Lishman, who a lot of people will know as Father Goose. So he taught Canadian geese how to fly south by following him in his ultralight aircraft. Oh, yes, which the film is about yeah, as well. Yeah, Fly Away Home. So he helped make that film. and But he's just in, this incredibly amazing, eccentric inventor. And... Um, just decided one day that he wanted to fly with geese. It was not like much more than than that. Previously, he had rebuilt um, the lunar landing module from a, 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 you know, like a model, a toy model. He rescaled it back up to full size in his backyard. He's just awesome. He actually um, invited me to his house to perform the song for the first time on Earth Day. And he lived in a geodome underground that he designed and built himself. It was amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't, to, for me, the excitement really becomes, it comes from the paths that different people have chosen to lead. And it doesn't matter if it's like super famous or not to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel like there is a difference too, because... Fame is different for everyone. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, but I, I really like relating to people who live their craft kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And, you've, and you've moved around a lot of genres and, and uh, mediums. Yeah. So is there, because you mentioned film, mm-hmm. and then there's normal music, then there's also like Chris Hadfield, like through... Live performances, right? So is there one medium that you find you enjoy the most when you think about it? Mm, I do love trying to get the songs to tape in the way that I, I want to. 
I think producing is my favorite medium. Yeah. And is that because you have full control or what is it about that? It's just a challenge. You, you can really plan it and it will not turn out anything like you expected and you'll end up with some amazing, crazy mistakes. And I think, I think that the lack of control of that keeps me fascinated. Although I do feel like the most recent record I made sounds like I wanted it to. And, but that took me seven albums to do. Yeah. I also love the live show. Like love. Yeah. How is, how is that process though of going from that? Because if, if for example, the, your newest album does like, especially if morning light does sound Mm -hmm. like you want it to, did you expect it to be like that? Yeah, because I hired an arranger for the first time ever, and I limited it to certain instruments. So it's flute, um, French horn, violin, cello, acoustic guitar, and voice. Well, maybe a banjo instead of acoustic guitar. My parents do guest on it, so there's um, an occasional clarinet or trumpet with my mom and dad, and uh, my neighbor plays piano on a track. And But it was very planned. Um, I, I arranged all the songs and then Ben Bolt Martin, who's like a, this Stratford festival vet did all the arrangements for it. And what I also, I think one of the big things I've battled through my career is not being able to perform albums live. So when I was really young, I would put anything I could think of on that album. And I don't know how many channels there would be. And then I, you know, I started to learn that as you, put one instrument in a certain frequency that you don't put another one over it. Yeah. It just takes a long time to learn these kinds of things if you don't go to school. Um, and that is the growing yeah. process, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. everyone has had that no matter what art form it is, but especially in music. Yeah. Because it is possible with technology. It's just doesn't need to happen. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. You kind of have to find those, those boundaries. Um, but I could never play my first two albums live. I don't think I, even three albums, I don't think I was ever to, able to pull them off live. This one, because everything's on charts, I actually don't even use the same band all the time. And we'll just do a rehearsal in the afternoon and we play the show at night and it's killer. It's just so much fun. And I kind of wanted to problem solve that issue. And also as music's become devalued in society, it's harder to tour with a band or um, uh, like with this, with this design, I don't have to fly four musicians to Winnipeg. I can show up myself and hire them there, which is really, really nice if that's the show that I'm going to do. And then the show that I do on my own is a very much a storytelling uh, adventure. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's a big difference there because when you come by yourself or when you have to bring a touring band, it's not just having a van and, and instruments. It's the whole setup and where you live and what you eat. And yeah, it's a lot of work actually. It's a dedication, dedication. And I liked how much the instrumentals were on that song. You know, like it's the flute, and a lot of the in, the individual sounds mm -hmm. really stood out. Thank you. Yeah, I, like that's actually 
people. I guess it's seven people, but at the core of it's kind of five. But then we added the fiddle, and then um, Ben Grossman's playing some boron in there. So I like that Irish drum, which is hilarious on Free Men of Bears. But um, yeah, I really think that Ben Bolt Martin's arrangements, like this record was really inspired by a project that I did with him of singing like really old Canadian folk songs and were arranged. And I included three of them on the album, The Weaver, Bonnie Banks of the Virgio, and Peter Amberley. And it's so neat to put these songs side by side with, um, you know, my modern tales of folk and uh, Joni Mitchell and have them all work because they, they're consistently played and consistently arranged. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I was, I noticed that too, when I was looking at the just track listing, mm -hmm. you can tell that there is that very Irish, you know, like the, like the Bonnie Banks of the Virgie is definite is obviously an Irish tune. It's right? Newfoundland. Okay. Yeah. It's, it was sourced in Newfoundland and it's, it's based on one of the child ballads, which would have been from, I guess, England. Um, but yeah, it's a, it was actually like kind of like, it, it's a fascinating, like, funny, funny, thanks to the Virgil. But I made it into, like, the darkest ballad you've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that one's Newfoundland. The Weavers, Ontario, and Peter Amberley is um, from 1890 out of um, New, New, oh, gosh, New Brunswick um, and PEI. He was, he was a logger from PEI who died tragically in a logging incident. So it's a, it's a beautiful song. Yeah. How do you approach that? Because in this, when as a folk singer, you are a storyteller, mm -hmm. right? Whereas when you're getting into choral folk, like orchestral, mm -hmm. it's more about the composition and arrangement than storytelling. So how do you balance that? Hmm. Uh, well, I try to focus on the storytelling. I definitely do. And I try to make the arrangements support the storytelling for sure. And we thought, you know, I kind of thought I was being really arranged, really original with this, but I found this like recording, like a centennial uh, set of records for $5 at my record store. There's 10 or 12 records. And there was a version of Peter Amberley on it with flute, almost, like very similar to what I did. That is interesting. Yeah, it was, which, so I thought I was being really original, but it wasn't. I found it after I made this album. Um, I think that, I think that the arrangement just should support the story. Like there's a song called Charlie Lake on here, which is really, um, was inspired by a place called Charlie Lake, but a night where I saw the, the Northern Lights there in rainbow colors and all the locals were telling me that if I whistled at the Northern Lights, they would dance. <laughs> and so there's all these people like whistling on a lake and it felt like we were in a kaleidoscope. Because and did they dance? They, well, the, the Northern Lights did. Yeah, like they dance. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they just do. And uh, I feel like Ben Bolt Martin made the Northern Lights come alive in the arrangement. And I just, that's why I love him so much. He's so dramatic. Yeah. I think that's where you find like the Stratford in me is, is the drama I try to put in the songwriting. So it's almost in your blood kind of. Yeah, it definitely is. And it, it intrigues me greatly. I still am like, kind of like OCD about whatever the festival is doing and I want to know who's in the plays and I follow every I actually like almost will see every single show there the whole season and I still have my secret dream is to be in one of their plays someday so every so often they have a girl on stage playing the guitar wandering you know the wandering minstrel role it's there 
But that's really my true dream. <laughs> it's the same as when I was eight. <laughs> so it hasn't changed in another last 30 years, so no. it works. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the thing I've definitely learned the most is just connections with people and friendships. And I really value having the opportunity to travel across Canada and know so many different people and um, stay connected with them and see them over the years. And it's like, hey, I haven't seen you for 10 years. You look amazing. Or, you know, it's just really fun to have friends everywhere and to realize how everyone lives a little differently and sees things a little differently. <laughs> Is there one story or one connection that sort of stands out for you? Um, one, uh, back to that Trescott song I wrote, I, uh, I was living in Northern BC when I wrote it in a place called Fort St. John. It was on the Alaska highway. It was remote to say the least. And I played the song. Part of my writing process is playing the song live. You can feel what's wrong with it when you do it in front of people. And I decided to play this at a just kind of local show of singer songwriters. And this fella in, um, in the lobby came right up to me and goes, actually, um, I was there when this happened. Like the, and I, and I know Stephen and I'd love to send him your song. And, um, he told me that he, you know, very vivid details from the days surrounding that time. And I, I was absolutely blown away that that had happened within minutes of my first time performing. So his name's Dave Constable and I've really enjoyed my connection with him. Um, Bill Lishman, who's Father Goose, I've become good friends with his family. He's actually, he passed away in 2017, at the end of 2017. Um, very suddenly of, of cancer, he's almost 80. And I loved the connection with him because he taught me how to welcome interested strangers into my life instead of thinking like, oh, this person wants to know about me. What's wrong with them? <laughs> I used to honestly think that. I was like, oh, you're too interested. Or whatever. He really taught me how to do that. And at his celebration of life and, and his funeral service, I think they were expecting like 300 people and over 800 people came because they felt this kind connection with this man who was so fascinating to them. I loved learning that from him. Um, and that's a big lesson too. Huge. You know, it's something yeah. that... I find that I'm good at doing that for other people. Yeah. But I'm not good at doing it the other way around. What do you mean? You know, so I'm good at getting other people, like strangers, interested in, into my friends that they don't know. Okay. But yet they'll make this great connection immediately. Oh. Because cool. I'll help foster it, right? Yeah. yeah. But then yet when it's flipped and when a friend will introduce someone to me, I find that I am like that in a way where it's sort of, when if they're what if they're too interested, you're kind of curious, you know, like what is mm -hmm. what is the source of this major interest? I don't think I'm that fascinating. Yeah, I know. It's like a self-deprecation, right? Yeah. And but I think when I was younger, I really thought that you chose who was gonna be in your life and you don't. You just have to um find how you relate to all these people who show up and be kind and um just get get the best out of each other. Yeah. But that's actually that that is a good that is a r really good point though because I mean even though you've done well in music, mm -hmm. you still have that those kind of like childhood dreams and like you it seems like you never turn them off. 
Oh, I don't. I'm. It's interesting. My mom told me when I was 18 that I was just going to get older, but that I wouldn't really feel older. And I mean, obviously, I make better decisions now, and I'm more responsible. But I haven't changed. <laughs> I've. I, but I. Everything's a little easier. Yeah. And I believe that that's the same when you're any age. I think. It does come with life, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How how has it affected your music, though, would you say? Well, I always think that music ends up being like a diary of where you are at the time. And I've never felt confined to staying in a genre or producing things certain ways. But obviously it changes over time. I really like I really like doing this, and I really love when I get to play live with the chamber group. So I'll probably do this again. But I don't feel that I have any obligation to. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You know, you don't, you're not tied to playing a sound or a style. No, you don't. I mean, if I was, if I had a whole team of people who are counting on me putting out something similar and working these channels, and that would be different. But I think that's why I don't is so I don't feel that there's any pressure to I feel freedom in art. Yeah. And especially as an independent artist, I mean that's that's a big <clears throat> factor mm-hmm. is making sure that you're able to do what you want creatively. Yeah, I think that's what I really fought in my twenties is that feeling uh with EMI that I had to kind of satisfy sales and things like that and like I mean I literally made it one album I couldn't do it and then I that's when I moved to northern BC to just kind of find myself again and find my connection to art and um that's where I started really writing songs about people in the land and that kind of stuff actually can you take us through uh what it's like to be signed to a label because I, I imagine some listening mm-hmm. Yeah. have gone through that, right? But it's it's a rare experience, to, especially with some, something like EMI, yeah. to know about all the teams and the extra stress and all the layers that come with that. Yeah, it's interesting because when I look back at it, I just didn't understand them. Like, I just, I didn't really, like, know what people did there. I, you know, like, it's like, oh, I'm the promo guy, I'm the radio guy, I'm the salesperson, I'm the A&R team. I mean, I understand. And you're like, cool. <laughs> yeah, I understood it to an extent, and um, but I didn't also realize, like, from a business perspective, how much I could have made that work for me as well. So because I was just so young getting into it, like, I literally went in their offices and played them songs on my acoustic guitar, and that's how I got my record deal. And um, the, or at least their interest or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish that I built better relationships with those people, and I really like those people still. And um, but I didn't, you know, my second album, they didn't like it when I delivered it, and it had people that I idolized on it. And um, like I, Greg Lee's this pedal steel player that I I saw play with um, Bob Dylan for the first time, and um, they wanted him off completely because it made it too alt country or to um, maybe they would consider it Americana and they wanted me to sound more like Avril Lavigne I think and so that those things just didn't our visions didn't align and they weren't talked about enough I think 
Um, and I was exploring still. My first album, you can find something that sounds literally like Nine Inch Nails and something that sounds like Joni Mitchell. And it was all over the place. And they loved that. But it was really hard for people to understand from a marketing standpoint what I did. And I it still is. <laughs> yeah. And that's hard for a record company. Um, but yeah, they, like what it's like to, they, they have an A&R team, which is artist and repertoire. That's what it means. And they're responsible for getting the record that the rest of the team can use, you know. And then there's an uh, artwork department that helps you do the photos and all of those things. And then uh, the sales well, I guess it would be like the radio team would distribute it to radio and there'd be like points people all over Canada and you'd fly all over Canada and meet with them and they'd take you to different radio stations. We kind of do what we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, except there was no social media, which was like strange, you know, like, I don't remember when there wasn't an, I don't even know how I got anywhere when there wasn't an internet. Um, but the, yeah, and then there's a pr- promotional team and a sales team, and so like the promo guys would get help get stuff into the stores, and yeah, it's it's really a, a massive network that these record companies have set up across the country. I don't know how it works anymore. With I don't like obviously there's massive relationships with Spotify and iTunes and things like that. I didn't even know that like you had to submit your single before it came out for playlists and stuff. And so I totally missed the boat there. Like, I just don't know, (laughs) you know, I I should probably do more research, but I'm literally working all the time, like putting out an independent album. And I put a book out on almost on the same day in October. I had a publisher for the book, which has been awesome. And she has set up, you know, if I went to Vancouver, I got to do a reading in Indigo and play a couple songs and do that kind of stuff. So that's been amazing. Um, but I literally like lost my brain in the fall trying to get this all done. And for me right now, like I am very much funded by my fans who've literally been with me since day one and the first record I put out in 1997. And it's, it's incredible and how much they support me. So half this record was funded by them. And then um, I got a factor grant for the other half, but a factor grant is quite something to manage and the paperwork involved with that. And I've kind of second guessed whether I would even do that again. It's, it's quite challenging. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that, you know, like it's, it's great that they fund. Oh, it's amazing. But it is, it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of tracking. Yeah. And it's numbers. a lot of upfronting money that you get paid back for, which is if you're an indie artist, it's financially stressful. And but they're, you know, incredible. I definitely, um, my record wouldn't sound like it does without them. They allowed me to kind of bring John Beetle Bailey on board, who's this amazing, you know, award-winning engineer who lives close to my house, actually. And actually, he's up for engineer of the year again this year. He's really, really amazing. For um, which album? Or uh, Alex which? Cuba. Oh, okay, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, so um, to have... Like this record was just so easy to make because I hired all the right people. And I think I was, Ron Sexsmith just moved to my town and every so often I, you know, get to talk to him. And he said to me like, well, I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't get anything right until album seven. And this is my album seven, seven. And it's the first time that it actually felt easy to record and get it to tape. And like, you really have to take a long time to learn these things. But my best advice to anyone is, have a vision and then hire the right people to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, 
it's actually just really quince ironic actually that what your path has almost matched the advice that sex smith gave you yeah it's very interesting but also it takes seven albums to realize that you should visualize the album you can make with the people who are around you because when you're younger you don't realize what a, a role each of those people will play you can't do it on your own you think you can um, and my vision never included, it didn't matter what other people did. I wanted them to do whatever my idea was, but it's way easier and way better to just hire people to do what they're very, very best at and create a vision of the people around you and, and what that can look like when everyone's at their best. Right. So you're almost making the album as a team mm-hmm. instead of as a one person led. Well, the producer, the artist will lead what that vision looks like and what that sound looks at, like, but that artist and producer needs to consider what they have to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Now, actually, that, yeah, that would be a big difference for you. Yeah. It's huge. Especially, it's huge. yeah. And given all the, and given the time that's passed, I mean, after seven albums, uh, is there one that you're very content with besides this one? Or. Um, it's interesting. Like, I actually like them all for different reasons. The one that cost the most, which was the second one I made with EMI, is the one I like the least. So ironic. And the one that I made for the least amount of money, like, made the Polaris Prize longer list. It was, like, the surprise thing that everybody really liked. It made it to, like, number one on the folk charts on your shot. Like, couldn't even... I, I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> Literally made it for no money. I think manufacturing it um, cost more than what we spent to record it. I produced and engineered it. It's called Trillium. It's by Trent Severn. And that seems to be like one that people really love. But I wouldn't have predicted that people really loved it. And I don't listen to it. <laughs> I don't listen actually this is the only one I listen to and I, I actually really like this I actually listen to my old album I'm gonna admit it but I never have in the past and why is that because that's a common thread with musicians it's because it's like your past it's like just like leaving your past in the past or something but this one is I love all the people so much who played on it and I think they're so talented and I have such lovely memories associated with it. There's a track called You You You, um, where the the piano is played by the, the musical director of the whole Stratford Festival, Franklin Braz, and watching him work in the studio in this part is incredible. And I have it as like the ringer on my phone. I love it so and every time I hear it I'm in, I'm so happy and I'm really proud of it. So I think I think um, maybe someday I won't, but this is one I like, yeah. When you look at your music career Mm -hmm. and how the tech has changed and how you've sort of, how you watched from the beginning, where you would have seen the high tech side of things. Yeah. And then now that you're fully independent and you're in a seventh album, how has that shift been? I feel like every time I put a record out, I have to relearn the business. Not the, not the technology, but at least the business. Um, the technology, the best... Oh, the, making my second record, I got to work with this guy named Jim Scott. And he engineered Californication by the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Actually, Chad Smith played on my album. Like, it was just the best. He, he engineered Tom Petty Wildflowers. 
which I think is one of the best sounding records of all time. I, I, I asked to meet him because I thought he made the best sounding records. And I went down there and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to learn everything. And he would say, you know, oh, we don't need you here today, Dana. Do you want to go down to Sunset? Bo-? I'm like, no, I'm not leaving. Like I can see Sunset Boulevard any day of my life. I, I want to be here. And we were recording in like the, the room Pet Sounds was recorded in. And yeah, it was just this incredible, incredible like Audio Slave was making a record, their first record next door, and Chris Cornell would like, you know, pour me coffee when he was getting his. It was just unbelievable, right? Like, just, which is a great story. I mean, like to be able yeah. to say that Chris Cornell poured you a coffee yeah, is it's incredible. Um, yeah, so it was, I so many things, but I thought I was going to learn all these tech secrets, and Jim owned an entire huge warehouse of musical gear, organs, like several Gretsch drum kits, several vintage, amazing acoustic guitars, amps, anything you could really think of, but he didn't play a note. And he knew how everything sounded. And he always told me, the secret is you put a good sound in front of a good microphone. And we, when we wanted to change the snare sound, we had 17 snares lined up in the hallway, and you went and got a different snare. And then you tried 17 snares. Well, you didn't have to try them all. You just, really, like, you feel like, have an idea that this one was the one that you wanted. But there wasn't a big secret. You got the good gear, and you put a good sound in front of it. And so I spent a ton of time working on what I sounded like, and my guitar playing, and... Um, my timing, like before I went down there, I played my, my record every day for hours with a metronome. And that's when I realized like what the difference was of being a professional and being, um, <laughs> you know, a, at home songwriter. So it's, we're all, it's always working on that, the, the sound in front of the microphone. So I bought some pretty decent gear, um, in probably, I don't know, maybe, Early 2000s, I bought an Avalon 737 and a TLM 103 Neumann mic, and I've used them to make almost everything since. And for a long time, I used even the same computers and stuff because as soon as you like upgrade anything, Pro Tools won't work anymore, and you have to resubscribe and or re get a new one or whatever. So my goal was always to update as least as little as possible. Well, to save the labor and hassle. Yeah. Yeah, And to save the cost. Cause if you, if you would change too many things, it would just cost kind of a little bit more. But I find like every time I'm trying to make a record, there's about a thousand dollars of upgrades I have to do. Um, yeah. So that's the big secret of recording work on your craft and be really good when you put a mic in front of it. That's what I think. And I feel like that's realistic too. Yeah. Because no matter how good your technology is, if the voice or the or the actual instrument isn't good, mm-hmm. then it won't endure the test of time nor live. Yeah, and actually just recently, after playing with these chamber folks who do this for a living and their cellos are worth thirty grand or flutes worth however much money. 
I realized that my guitar didn't sound good enough. And I finally, like, just this year, I invested in a Loudon from Ireland and up my game so I could kind of have an instrument that was on par with the rest of them. And I wish that I did that sooner. That's something that I learned. I wish I wish I had made that investment a little tiny bit sooner. Although I didn't fly with my Loudon here today. I've never flown with it yet. And I, I don't know, something freaked me out about coming into the cold or something. Yeah. Well, it's also... It changes when it gets that expensive. Mm-hmm. I can just imagine that the stress level of traveling with it goes from manageable to yeah. just extremely stressful. And even the smallest drop is... Yeah, you do not even want to nick in this thing. And I've had two guitars headstock snapped off from someone knocking it over on stage. Or um, I watched an airline toss the guitar from the from the plane to the baggage carrier and opened it up with the headstock popped off of it when I was about 18. It's extremely stressful. Um, but with the, like, even with the loud and I, even at a rehearsal, I won't even leave it on a guitar stand. Like, you know, but I have uh, played a couple shows with it now and it it's something that I really wish I did a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that makes a big difference. Having high-end equipment and obviously in, in, in this situation, you had the quiet, the, the the other musicians that sort of pushed you to do it, but mm-hmm. I, I do. I suppose that would be also a choice that you have to con- consciously make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you do have to make it, and you have to also tell yourself that you deserve it, which is hard. <laughs> Actually, let's jump into that a little, like okay. a bit more, because I think that is even more important than having better instruments. But it's mm-hmm. actually convincing yourself that okay, I'm good enough to have an instrument that should that I deserve. It's the, actually in my book, in the foreword, the final line is something along along the lines of, of, you can read everything in this book, but I am guaranteeing you the hardest part is having an unwavering belief in your own art. Like it is so hard on a daily basis to just keep going and believe that you're good enough and you're worthy enough to do this kind of thing. And it's not, it's not like good enough or worthy enough it, or just that there's a reason to. And um, for me, you know, that reason it's, has changed um, a lot over the years. Yeah. In a good way or yeah. in a bad way, do you think? I think in a good way. Like I think that I it's just weird. I just feel like I want to make things for posterity and I want to make things that celebrate cool people and good things that have happened in the world. And, um, you know, I think in high school I wanted like boys to ask me out on dates. It's just a different reason. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious then what, when you, what is your, like, what is your reason to make music now? Is, I think escape from the world. I feel like there's just this un, another realm that exists in the world that we all are completely aware of, but we don't really know how to access. And I feel like I access it through music. And it's the same feeling that you get when you stand in the middle of a forest. I don't know how to explain that. Um, and I love inspiring other people to do music like I teach a ton of girls and a lot of girls songwriters and I also teach them that this is like something that's going to soothe your soul for the rest of your life and is going to comfort you and no one else will and that it's um 
this like kind of self-esteem tool. It's not just music. It's this thing that can be your rock, literally, for life. Yeah. Because it's you decide how much you commit. You decide how far it goes, too. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's kind of this one thing you're in control of, maybe. But, like, not that much of in, in control. It, it becomes this crazy adventure. But that is, that is, no, that's a great point, though. Mm-hmm. That you technically you do control the music you know like you control how much time you put into it yeah you control the shows you play how far you want to travel for it that's right although you can't just like get any show you want but you can say yes or no yeah (laughs) i mean that's that's a lot of control in life really (laughs) yeah if you can if you can choose any show to play yeah relatively But I do, I do make, like, my goals are never like, oh, I'm going to sell 10,000 copies of this album. My goal for this album is that there's a place in in um, London, England, that I really want to play called the Sam Wanamaker. It's like the um, small theater of the globe, off the globe. And I saw them do All's Well That Ends Well by candlelight in that theater. And it's just, it's almost like a, a silo. And... Um, it, everyone sits around the stage and the actors all would have a silver sconce with a candlelight actually lighting themselves. It was the most beautiful thing I ever saw. And there was a chamber orchestra live, just like I play with, just four people up in the balcony. And when I was there, all I could think about was that my new goal is that I'm going to play there once with my chamber or- orchestra. <laughs> and so once I achieve that, then I'll have some new crazy goal. But it's never... It's never something that I don't think is not achievable. I pick, try to pick achievable goals. And I don't try to make them about anything except like some experience that I want to have. Yeah, I'm getting to that point now too. Uh-huh. I've, I've done enough in the last four to five years that it's kind of when you achieve something and it's not an experience, it's kind of... It's just really depressing at yeah, times. Yeah, actually that's true. Yeah, like you work... Yeah, it, it needs to be an experience of some sort and um, inspire you. Yeah, that's interesting that you said that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at the same time, though, too, it has to be something that pushes you farther. Yeah, I think it has to like lead to the next goal being, and who knows what that would be. Oh, yeah, yeah. you never know what that is. It's just it can never be, at least I'm really conscious of, Whatever goals I make, it has to be something that can actually be a good stepping stone, mm-hmm. but can but something that can also like close off that chapter. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, i I haven't. I only released this in Canada, like on Spotify and stores and stuff. And but my rid my hope is that I can kind of get some videos and stuff together. And I think that England is where who's going to like this record the most. And so that's my, my plan. My next plan is to try and like make some materials and content that I can use to like over there. I wouldn't mind having some, a manager or some help. Um, but in Canada, I feel like it's manageable. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and on that note, um, tell us about, because you're also in town, not just for oh, yeah. this, that's but right. <laughs> you're also in town because you're performing a show at the Motley Kitchen tonight. Yeah, I am. Um, you, it's a dinner and show, but the dinner part is like sold out now. So you can come for the show for $25. It starts around 730. 
There's two sets, and uh, just so you know, the comedian at the arena is sold out, so you have to come to my show. My show. You have <laughs> you no want... choice but to see Dana yeah. play songs and tell stories. Yeah, and I do have copies of Morning Light there, and my book, if you're interested, or you can just jump on my website and uh, uh, listen to the whole album there, or, or grab a book, or whatever you want to do. <laughs> awesome. Um, as we go out, I'm thinking we should play... A third song, another okay. like a shorter song. Okay. Uh, so what song should we play f- to go out? The Weaver is a nice shorter song. It's um a ba- it's a dirty Ontario folk song. So um, it was hard to collect for Edith Folk because the Ben wouldn't sing it to her. It was so racy. Not that racy anymore. <laughs> Awesome. So, uh, is it working? <laughs> it was the the buttons were not clicking the right way. Oh, those the it was old going technology. With, it is. It's an older technology, and it was hitting. It went from six to eight, and then to five, and then to nine, and then back to six. It could be my crappy CDs. <laughs> I don't know. It was. Uh, I was confused as well. What was happening? But we're all good now. Okay, great. So. Thanks for coming on, Dana. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad this worked out. The only reason I didn't get up to you right away is so I wasn't sure what sound check time it was. And uh, yeah, that this is a highlight. Thank you. Yeah, and it turned out really well. And thank you for everyone that's listening so far. And if you want to find the podcast and all the past 25 plus episodes, feel free to go to Spotify, Apple, and Google Play, and just all those other platforms because there's too many now. And just look up the music profit and we'll see you next time.